welcome to this morning's webinar. My name is John Marzola. I'm a partner here at the Lois Law Firm, uh, and we're uh, very looking forward to speaking to you today about evaluating claims for exposure in New York. I hope everybody had a nice weekend. hope everybody's ready for Thanksgiving and everybody's travel plans are set as we uh, head into uh, a nice short holiday week. Good morning. Uh, this is Tim Kane. He is uh, my right-hand man, and uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Right. This is Tim Kane. I'm a senior associate here at the firm. Um, my team and I primarily handle uh, cases in Manhattan, Staten Island, and out on Long Island and Hop Hog, although I'm looking forward to handling claims all over the state with the advent of virtual hearings. This morning's uh, webinar, uh, as I mentioned, will be focused on ex uh, evaluating cases for exposure, and we'll, we're going to get into uh, the different types of exposures and uh, what that process entails. Um, but remember, this is live, so please feel free to ask questions. Uh, I hope everyone sees that box that's popped up on your screen, and if you have uh, a question, feel free to ask if something pops in your head along the way, uh, and we'll try to get to as many as we can at the end. Right. Okay, so when we're evaluating exposure, um, keep in mind, uh, when judges make that final determination as to what this case is worth and what, everyone, what you're going to have to pay, uh, at the end of the case, uh, they are going to use the disability duration guidelines pretty much as the heartbeat of their decision. There's a, a bunch of other things that go into it, um, but primarily in our experience, we've determined that what your medical impairment is, generally speaking, uh, forms the, the majority of what that ultimate decision is. Right, and when we do an exposure analysis on a case, at this point, you know, we're assuming this is an established case. Of course, in the early life of a case, there may be reasons that you can uh, get rid of a case for what we call a nuisance value, a lower amount. But once a case is established, depending on the sites that are, um, that are established, we're going to be looking at it in terms of, of what the future exposure is, and that's why we're looking at the permanency guidelines. Right, and there's really two kinds of claims uh, in which the exposure for your case is ultimately going to be evaluated. We have the scheduled loss of use claims, and we have your loss of wage earning capacity claims. Uh, a scheduled loss of use claim is one that's limited to uh, a specific set of body parts, uh, those being the fingers, toes, hands, arms, feet, legs, and eyes. Yep, you're looking at the extremities as well as the eyes. Um, anytime a case is strictly established for the extremities, or even in cases where the neck and back might be established, but the person goes back to work and they're not really milking it for that neck and back claim and they just want their schedule, that's a good way to uh, get a finding of permanency and close the case down. Right. And I found that uh, the scheduled loss of use claims um, can be more direct in terms of calculating the exposure because uh, there's less subjectivity that goes into it and we're not talking about uh, certain vocational factors. Uh, it's governed by the scheduled loss of use charts of weeks where each body part is determined to have a uh, set value for a maximum number of weeks you have to pay at the temporary total disability rate. Right. What you're looking at on the screen now is quite literally the schedule that goes into the schedule loss of use determination. Uh, like you said, John, you know, once a determination of the percentage of loss of use has been made, whether that's by a judge or whether that's per agreement of the parties based on the doctor's reports, uh, then it's a simple matter of doing the math. You take the uh, indemnity credit, you take the gross number, and you figure out what's moving uh, to the claimant. Right. And... Um before we get there, uh, that being the, the end of the case where a scheduled loss of use percentage is assigned, um, 
we're going to make we're going to want to make sure that the evaluating doctor, both the the claimant's treating physician as well as our IME, are going through the proper channels to come up with that particular percentage, right? Right. So. Um, particularly in a contested or, or controverted uh, uh, schedule loss use matter, you not controverted, but when it's it's when the issue is joined, um, you want to make sure that the doctor first and foremost use the the SLU guidelines, the permanency guidelines when they come up with their determination. Sometimes a doctor will say on cross examination that um, you know I just I kind of made a guess based on 30 years of, of being a doctor, or right. I just picked a number out of thin air, and that's certainly an area where you can. Um, uh, attack their credibility because obviously these percentages are described in detail in the guidelines and they're supposed to be using these guidelines when they make their slew opinion. Right, and I found uh, that usually the highest exposure um, findings in terms of the, the knee and the, and the shoulder in particular, uh, the, the range of motion or the alleged rate, range of motion restrictions generally uh, what is what drives that bus in terms of the, the higher percentages we see, even in cases where there hasn't been a surgery? Um, and what are some of the, in your experiences, Tim, what are some of the things uh, that, that we can cross-examine claimants' doctors about to kind of attack those findings on in terms of range of motion limitations? Right. So, um, as you said, a big chunk of the determination is based on the range of motion findings of the doctor. So what you might want to do is look at the doctor's last few reports before that permanency report, or look at even a different treating doctor's most recent reports and see if the range of motions are different. If they suddenly walked into their permanency evaluation and their range of motion suddenly decreased significantly, you can cross them against their prior reports or against the other treating doctor's reports and say, hey, what's the story here? Why did his range of motion uh, get so much worse when it came time to figure out the schedule loss of use? Uh, furthermore, the doctor is using a tool often called a goniometer um, but if they don't use that or some other um, tool to determine range of motion, if they just eyeballed it, that's certainly you can, something you can cross-examine them about and try and uh, attack their credibility that way. Right, and I think we also want to make sure that uh, uh, they engage in active as well as passive exactly. testing in terms of uh, the, the range of motion limitations, right? Right, you ask them you know, whether the, there was a subjective element to the claimant's effort, Usually, not surprisingly, the IME doctor finds a, uh, a much greater range of motion than the claimant's doctor, although not always, <laughs> but often enough. Yeah, I actually have seen that sometimes, right, where um, the IME finds a higher percentage of schedule loss of use. Um, Every now and then. Yeah, and then you, you put get in that position. Right, you get in that situation where uh, you don't want to have to attack your own doctor, so usually the parties put their heads together and come up with an amicable resolution, you know, somewhere in between the two competing opinions. Usually, yes. It makes for a more comfortable experience than uh, saying to your <laughs> own doctor, who's supposed to be on your side, hey, you know, where'd you calculate? Where'd you come with these calculations? Right. We don't agree with that. Yeah, although both sides would have to be in that same position, so. True, you know. true enough. And um, on the schedule loss of use, um, when, you're, when you're going through the, the, the permanency guidelines with respect to the range of motion um, charts, we find that this, is again, lacks subjectivity. It's, it's very black and white. It, 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 either the body part was able to, to reach a certain uh, degree or it wasn't, right? Isn't that pretty much Right, and then you can take that exact degree of range of motion plug it into the medical or the, you know, the SLU guidelines, and it'll tell you what the percentage is. There's also, uh, to be clear, um, for most sites, a set of special considerations. If there was a certain type of surgery or if a diagnostic showed a particular finding, there are 
additional percentage points that can be tacked on for those special considerations. But again, these are things that the doctor has to elucidate clearly in their report. These are things that you can cross-examine them on. Um, they have to be documented. So, for example, um, if someone had um, a particular, like I said, a particular type of surgery, and that's listed in the special considerations, they might be able to tack on some extra points. If, if that particular surgery is not listed in the special considerations, then, then they won't. So you want to take a look at what's, um, per, what's been happening, what's performed on this, this claimant, what, uh, what di- the diagnostics say, and make sure that the schedule loss use finding is appropriate. Right. And we also want to make sure that whatever findings the doctor uh, may have come up with based upon physical examination, that it's on the proper form. Because it's not going to be acceptable uh, for the exam to take place, for a finding to be documented, but then it not be on a specific form known as a C-4.3. Right. Tactically, you know, when the claimant and the carrier have been directed to produce permanency reports, the carrier just gets an IME as per usual. That's what the carrier usually produces. But the claimant's physician is required to produce that on a C4.3. And if they fail to do so, even if they don't think that the claimant has reached a maximum medical improvement, um, you can get the claimant's opportunity to produce a permanency report precluded by some judges. So that's definitely an argument you want to make if it's uh, possible. Yeah, I've personally found that um, although in a, in a claimant-friendly world that we live in in New York, uh, there are certain things that uh, judges absolutely make the claimants uh, abide with and comply with. And getting those permanency findings on that C4.3 is one of them. For whatever reason, they seem to really stick to uh, the report being on that form by a date certain. Uh, maybe they'll give them a final opportunity right. if, if it doesn't come in by the, the first date they give them. But uh, I've seen on a number of occasions in the past couple of months where judges have started to um, preclude the report and consequently uh, make their decision on the extent of schedule loose based solely on the IME. Right, definitely. Um, and uh, we kind of touched on this briefly, but again, uh, in the world of a schedule loss of use uh, permanency finding, it's always going to be the temporary total rate of compensation that the award is paid at. In other words, two-thirds of what the claimant's average weekly wage is subject to the statutory maximum for, for the year in which mm-hmm. the accident occurred, um, 66.6% of the average weekly wage, all payable in a lump sum up front at once, of course, with, with the carrier taking credit for all prior payments made. That's correct. Again, you just use that schedule. You take the percentage against the total number, number of weeks that that uh, extremity is valued at. You subtract the indemnity, and you've got your, uh, your final number. Right. And let's not forget about protracted healing period. That's Indeed. A, kind of a dirty term uh, for, from, from carrier's side because uh, that's a little unpleasant surprise you might have at the end of the case. Uh, and what, what we mean by that is that for each of the scheduled uh, body parts, your, your, your arms, your legs, your feet, your fingers, your toes, um, there are what's known as a normal healing, normal healing period. Uh, and uh, for each body part, there is a chart that uh, there's a commiserate number of weeks that's considered normal. Uh, for example, the arm, 32 weeks, the leg, 40 weeks, and so on and so forth. It's all there in the chart. But uh, what that means is that if you exceed those number of weeks for the normal healing period for each part, uh, at the end of the case, you could be entitled or you, you could be obligated from a carrier's perspective to pay uh, however many weeks in addition to the normal healing period at the total rate. Right. So practically speaking, that number of weeks has to do with the number of weeks of temporary total indemnity bef- benefits that were awarded to the claimant. And so um, any carrier uh, defense attorney is going to, in any case that looks like it's going to end up in a schedule loss use award, 
you want to minimize the number of weeks that are awarded at the total rate. So um, you look at the medical reports. If the claimant's doctor doesn't say 100% temporary total for any period of time, you ask the judge not to make the award at TT for that period of time. You look for a TR rate or a TD rate. Um, you definitely want to try to minimize the number of weeks at TT. Same thing if you get an IME that says a partial disability. You want to get that case on calendar and get the rate reduced uh, as soon as possible to try and avoid hitting some of these numbers, which you know aren't terribly large numbers. So it's, it's and I've definitely seen cases where people have been claimants have been at total for a year, and it just gives a ridiculous boost to the final slew award. So you just made two points that I think are very important. First, remember, even if uh, you're voluntarily paying the claimant at the temporary total rate, but there's no medical evidence to support an ongoing temporary total disability, or you're not under direction from the court to do so. Again, you're doing voluntarily uh, with or without the medical evidence to support uh, a TTD award. Remember, to w w at some point those awards are going to be formalized, and if the medical evidence was not there to support the period in which you voluntarily made those temporary total payments, uh, it's, it's critical to request that even if the rate is not being adjusted, that it's a tentative rate, um, not right. total, because those weeks will count against the normal healing period and could leave you with an extended period of protracted healing period payments. The other thing you said I, I think is very important, uh, when you have a scheduled loss of use, uh, established injury, and you have a surgery, very important, very important to get an IME uh, within 90 days of, of that surgery because they're going to be entitled to at least that uh, that period of temporary total benefits, and you want to get into court as soon as possible and just get off TTD, no matter what the rate relief you get is. Get off TTD as soon as possible when you when you're dealing with a scheduled loss of use claim. Right, because all the weeks above and beyond that normal healing period are just tacked on to the ultimate schedule, and it can really significantly increase the uh, the exposure. Okay, I think we covered. Uh, a lot of things in terms of scheduled loss of use claims. Let's jump over to, to another type of uh, claim and a different type of exposure, and that's when we're talking about loss of wage earning capacity claims. Right. These are traditionally your neck and back injuries. Uh, it doesn't always have to be. There are cases where if you have, for example, the bilateral, bilateral upper extremities are injured, you might get an argument for a classification. But for the most part, whenever the neck and back are established, that's when you've got to start thinking about um, what are we looking at here in terms of uh, LWEC permanency. Right. And uh, similar to scheduled loss of use claims, there is also uh, a, a number of weeks that are uh, assessed to um, a corresponding loss of wage earning loss of wage earning capacity percentage. There is a, uh, a delineated number of weeks for whatever range the claimant falls in at the end of the case when the judge makes that permanency determination, right? Right, and uh, these are awarded over the course of time, unlike a schedule loss of use, which is characterized in terms of a number of weeks, but is usually paid out in a lump sum. With an LWAC, it's, uh, you know, that's the number of weeks over the course of which the claimant will be receiving weekly or biweekly checks for indemnity benefits. Right, and the other key difference here is unlike scheduled awards, uh, you're not getting the temporary total rate for those weeks. You're going to get the rate uh, that's corresponding with the, the, the ELWIC percentage, right? Right, correct. So it's the greater the exposure, I mean, the, the greater the, the, the rate and the number of weeks, I mean, the, the, the exposure increases almost exponentially. So you want to try to make sure that you, uh, you keep both numbers as low as possible. Right, right. <laughs> okay, and... Uh, 
the way we ultimately get there, right, the, the day in which the judge said, okay, I've made up my mind, here's the loss of wage earning capacity uh, number for your case. Uh, the first thing that has to happen is that there has to be uh, a, a finding of maximum medical improvement from both sides, uh, and then from there, um, we can start talking about what the impair- impairment rating is. Or a, or a finding of maximum medical improvement from one side, and the judge makes that decision. You, know, you can litigate maximum medical improvement versus further cause-related disability, or if both doctors concede MMI, then you just proceed with the... Uh, yeah, well, it makes it nice and easy when both doctors agree right. that... Uh, right. Today's the day, maximum medical improvement in the region, <laughs> but we all know not all cases go, go like that. Right, and even then, they're likely to have uh, differing opinions as to the degree of permanent impairment. Right. So, but let's imagine for a moment we're in a world, right, where the, the doctors are in agreement uh, that, that we've had MMI. The next step is they have to assign a severity ranking uh, for, the, for each uh, classifiable body part, right? Correct. And that's all per the permanency guidelines. There are a multitude of tables that the doctors can refer to for, um, you know, whether the claimant was surgically treated or not surgically treated, um, you know, the type of complaints they have, whether they're um, with, with or without objective support. And the doctors can put them in the right table to determine the, uh, the class and severity. There's also supplemental tables that have to do with uh, radiculopathy. So and they have to go ahead and calculate all the points, and those are... Areas that are ripe for uh, for cross examination, right? And um, you know the guidelines can get quite intricate in terms of all the various factors that go into a, a permanency finding. Um, but I find that to be helpful. I think uh, it gives us uh, as defense attorneys a lot of tools to cross examine uh, the, the treating doctor's reports with, and kind of poke holes in those reports if uh, his finding is not aligned with those various tables. Exactly. Yep. And uh, the information also goes on a C43, just like in our schedule loss of use uh, claims. But there are some differences in terms of uh, the, the, the uh, various components that go into the report, most notably the, the functional assessment, uh, where there are a number of, of, I guess, physical acts and activities um, in which the claimant's doctor uh, is compelled to note whether they can never do this, whether they can occasionally do it, whether they can frequently do it. Uh, and... I have found that um, the advent of this report has been very helpful in making an argument that the the permanency finding is not consistent with the various functional assessments that the doctor came up with. Definitely. So if there's a concession on this section that the claimant is able able to, to sit for long periods of time, for example, you could say, doctor, well, then couldn't they... Take a desk job. I mean, maybe this is somebody who had a, a very highly physical type job before they were injured, and if they're capable of, of sitting there, I'm sure they can also pick up a phone. So you can definitely get uh, some useful concessions here. And just below this section, which isn't pictured here on the C4.3, the doctor is also required to indicate uh, whether the restrictions are, are light duty, moderate duty, heavy duty, that kind of thing. So that's another area where you can really dig in on cross examination. Right, and uh, it gets quite specific, right? Like what. What is a sedentary job? What is a light-duty job? Um, and I find that um, what, it, it, this can go both ways, right? Because the doctor is either going to concede you can do a light-duty job, which I find is very helpful in terms of getting the Elwick finding down, uh, or they're not. They're going to say you can't do a light-duty job. You can do less than sedentary work. You can do nothing. You're so disabled, it's a challenge for you to even get out of bed. But there's that's not the end of the story in a lot of these claims because uh, you, you can get a report in that, looks quite concerning in terms of how disabled the individual is, but 
you have that person under surveillance, either before or after the exam, uh, there are ways to combat uh, what, what could be a, a daunting uh, C4-3 report. Certainly. Um, anytime the claimant tells their doctor they can or can't do something, if they say, I, I can't drive a car, and then you have a video of them driving a car, um, then you start getting into the realm of maybe I can raise fraud um, against this claimant. And that's certainly a, a pretty powerful defense. Um, there's also the, uh, the, as pictured here in the slide, if you ask the doctor to if they performed a functional capacity assessment or whether they, the, the claimant would benefit from a functional capacity assessment, that gives you a number of different points against which to um, measure the claimant's um, claimed uh, deficits versus what you can see in the video. Yeah, I, I, lo I love when they say they can never drive a car, right? Because you know, when you do surveillance, sometimes it's hard to uh, catch them in a, um, a moment of, wow, we got a smoking gun here, this person is absolutely engaging in fraud. Um, but you don't always get that great surveillance where you see them working or, or, they're, or they're doing something incredibly stressful. But seeing people drive a vehicle is something that uh, th that's easy to catch, right? It's a yes or no. It's a yes or no, and when they say no on that box, they've got a, they've got a fraud issue right out of the gates. Uh, it's really the easiest kind uh, of way to, to nail someone when their doctor's saying I, they can't drive a vehicle. That's why you'll see them say occasionally, right? Like, th that's the one they don't ever want to, like, really give up because they yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, well, how'd you get to the exam today? Well, you know, sometimes you'll see I took a bus, but uh, that might be on a one-off doctor's appointment, but I think someone uh, who, you know, drives a vehicle in their, in their spare time is something you're going to, you can catch that. Right, and importantly, if you're going to go down the road of fraud, these have to be things that the claimant represented to the doctor or the claimant represented to the IME if it's just the doctor saying it, that's not good enough. So you have to make that distinction. Right. Now, you mentioned functional capacity evalu uh, evaluations. Uh, is that something, that in, your, in your experience, that we can actually force the claimant to attend? I don't know whether any judge is going to force the claimant to attend unless, for example, the IME indicates that um, that, that information is required in order to make a, f a determination of, of, of a degree of permanent impairment. And even, even better, if the claimant's own doctor says that that's something that um, it would be useful in this case. Um, and so you can ask for the judge to direct that. I don't know if every last judge is going to direct it, but it's certainly something that some judges will say, okay, you can go ahead and schedule that and the claimant will attend. Right, and I think, like you said, the key is that... Uh the, the IME says it would be helpful. Uh, in order to kind of nudge that answer out of them, I think it's a good idea to uh, serve, serve them with a, a, a cover letter, right? A good cover letter in advance of the exam in which we pointedly ask our doctor, Do you, would you find a functional capacity evaluation to be helpful uh, in forming your opinion? Right, you definitely want to um, get the right information out of the doctor across the board, so a good cover letter can always help with that. And also asking, I guess, the treating doctor on cross-examination, would that have been helpful? They're usually not going to concede that, but you never Sometimes know what they, they say. Yeah. Sometimes they do. Yeah. And um, remember, um, when ar you know, arguing a Elwick um, case before a judge, they're going to use that medical impairment uh, as kind of the heartbeat of their opinion, but that's not where the analysis ends. There are other factors that go into the judge's decision, or at least there should be. Oh, most definitely. You've got the uh, vocational factors. This is where the claimant testifies. So up till now, you've been cross-examining the IME doctor. I mean, you've been cross-examining the claimant's doctor. You, you've taken testimony of the IME doctor, and the judge um, gets a pretty good idea, hopefully, of the degree of medical impairment. And then it's time for the claimant to sit down 
and testify about vocational factors. These are things like the um, level of education they have, um, their English speaking, reading, and writing skills, any particular training that they've had, uh, you know, what they've done in their career uh, leading up till now. And that's a lot of really ripe area, again, for cross-examination. Um, if somebody, again, was injured in a very physical job, but they worked for 15 years before that as a bank teller, you could say, well, is there anything stopping you from going back to that work as a bank teller? It's something you're clearly capable of. That's just a, a hypothetical but that's definitely uh, an area where you can um, really dig in, uh, particularly if, um, if you have from the employer um, the resume that the person submitted to check against what the answers that they put on their uh, um, you know, pr- um, vocational factors form, um, if you have um, information from their personnel file, if you have potentially even a, a, an employer witness who can come in and testify about the kind of things that this person is capable of doing on the job above and beyond the, the obvious Descriptions, you know, if they were if they were uh, on a management level, um, and they they oversaw you know a dozen people or two dozen people, and they had to deal with all kinds of issues above and beyond the um, brass tacks of the job. That's the kind of information you want to get in front of the judge. Yeah, and um, I think also good to ask about social media, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in this age, uh, vast majority of claimants they're going to be somewhere, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, uh, and asking them how much time are they in front of a computer. Um, you know, they may deny it and say none or limited, but there are ways <laughs> to uh, secure that information and, and present them with it, uh, right. and make an argument that they they are able to do other things other than just you know lay in bed all day and nurse themselves back to health. Right. These days, it doesn't seem terribly credible to me when someone says, "No, I've never used a computer. I've I've no idea how to use a smartphone." But you definitely hear that, and so if you can uh, objectively prove otherwise, that uh, could be helpful to your case. And just following up on a point we made earlier, remember it's uh, in, in evaluating the exposure uh, from a numbers perspective, it's going to be rate times number of weeks equals the exposure and then plus the cost of medical. Right. When you're doing an exposure analysis, there's this sort of amorphous, tenuous future medical cost question. Unless you have uh, an MSA, and then it becomes a lot more concrete, and hopefully the MSA isn't too damaging. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to take a stab at that future medical number. Okay. Well, uh, I think at this time maybe we'll open up to any questions if you have any. Yeah. So we've got some questions. I got a question from Leonard here. Oh, really? He says, knees! Exclamation point. How can we move a knee to a schedule when the claimant refuses to have surgery, uh, for example, total knee replacement, and the judge stands on no maximum medical improvement reached. So essentially, what do we do to get to close out a knee case when they refuse to get surgery? And I think you should try to restate the question because many people can't hear me. Right, so the question is, in a knee case, and I suppose this could apply to any body part, but the question was specifically with regard to the knees. Um, if the claimant has had surgery recommended but refuses to get it, surgery that would presumably get them uh, uh, to the point of MMI, heal them up and get them better, but they don't want to have it for whatever reason, um, can they just rely on this interminably and just keep the temporary benefits flowing um, on an indeterminate length of time because they refuse treatment? Absolutely not. And you see that more than 
more than you think. Um, because I think when the rubber meets the road, some of these injuries may not be quite as serious, as, as, right? Like, can you imagine that scenario, Tim, where the injury is not as serious as the claimant and their doctor says it is? I know it's hard to believe. Hard to believe. But uh, sometimes when, you know, they, they're pursuing this case, right, and the, the, their doctor's saying, you know, you may need surgery, and they may take it as far as, uh, requ- you know, requesting authorization, and maybe the IME concedes it's necessary, maybe not. But at the end of the day, if the judge determines it is necessary, ultimately they have to have it. Um, uh, or they, they're going to be determined to be at MMI. If they're going, they'll, they'll give them 90 days. They may even give them 120 days. But I've seen that a lot where uh, they ultimately determine they're uncomfortable with surgery, they don't want to have it. And once their doctor uh, admits that on cross-examination, that's the time where you ask the question, well, doctor, since if he's not going to pursue surgery, would you agree that he's reached maximum medical improvement? And at that point, they're, they're basically boxed in their corner. It's a yes or no question. Um, and... At that point, in my experience, I found that that's the point in which the doctor will say yes. If he doesn't want to have the surgery, then MMI has been reached. And then, and then you would follow it up with like, okay, well, at that point, what, what would you assess for a scheduled loss of use? You'll, you'll get a percentage that way. Uh, and, and that's generally how, how that would go. I don't know if you've had a different experience. No, I think you're right. I mean, it, it may take more than one round of litigation. Uh, the judge may find the first time around that the, they find the claimant's uh, treating doctor to be uh, more credible, and this person is a candidate for surgery. But if you come back uh, three or six or nine months later with a fresh IME and the same stale argument from a claimant's counsel about this person needs surgery and they haven't made a move, uh, your, your argument becomes a lot stronger over the course of time. And as you said, you ask the doctor, look, if he's not going to have the surgery, are we at MMI? And usually that'll be yes, um, and you can make that argument to the judge. And obviously, if need be, it's, need be you take that up on appeal. Right. All right, let me, let me throw another question out there. A couple more on SLUs. Let's answer them maybe offline. Here's a good one. When looking for the injured worker on Facebook, should employers do the social media checks or should they use a surveillance firm to do that? Want to restate the question? I don't know. Did everyone hear that, do you think? So when looking for... No, not. I mean, we'll restate oh, on this end. Yeah, the question is uh, whether uh, when you're looking at someone's social media presence whether it's preferable for the employer to just go ahead and dig in that manner or if you should have a surveillance firm do it. What do you think, John? I think uh, it's okay for the employer to, um, you know, look, look for it. And if they, if they see something that's uh, out of line with what the medical reports have been saying, um, I think it's probably best course. Let, let your attorney know about it. Um, and at that point, uh, we would make a recommendation. I, I mean, I guess if you hired an investigator to um, follow up on what they see and, and start surveillance based upon what's, what's being captured on Facebook, that's probably going to be the route you're going to want to go. But I have no objection whatsoever to a, an employer doing their own background check. This stuff is uh, very easily findable. I mean, I guess if they have certain privacy settings, it might be more challenging. But even then, you're, you are able to cull some information from just a general Facebook social media right. search. I think, I think there's an important distinction which should be made with regard to social media, which is that if a lot of people make their pages or their, their presence freely available, publicly available, and certainly anybody can, can go ahead and, and um, present that information to a judge if there was no expectation of privacy. But on the other hand, if a supervisor knows that one of their employees was good friends with the, uh, the claimant and says, hey, man, uh, you know, you can see his uh, his Facebook page, right? Can I just take a quick look at that? And they pull the information that way. That's that's a no-no. So you're going to want to be careful about how you get the information. Uh, it all has to be above board. Right. 
Okay. We're just about out of time here. If uh, we didn't get to all your questions, we will answer them by email. Um, and all our information is on the website, both Tim and I's specific email addresses and phone numbers. You can find it right there. Uh, and we'll get back to you uh, as soon as we can. Um, our next webinar is Monday, December 17th. We'll be talking about reimbursement and subrogation in New York, talking about Section 29 liens and the Burns and Kelly calculations. Oof, can't wait. Yeah, bring your calculator to that one, Tim, okay? <laughs> um, well, listen, everybody, thanks for joining us today. I hope everybody has a uh, happy and healthy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next time. Take it easy, everybody.